marriage, because I think there's something else we should address today. Uh, I feel it is very, very important for all of us. I read an article this morning, which I think it would behoove us all to read. It's on Jeff Rincey, uh, the Jeff Rincey site, lead article. It's entitled, U.S. Gives China Eminent Domain Over U.S. Property. This is probably the most astounding news that has been put out, if it be true, and the reports are correct, in the history of this country. It involves probably the highest act of treason against the American people that has ever been enacted. It goes back and shows a series of events. He says he's going to connect the dots in the article and show how Nixon and Clinton and others, and now Obama, have betrayed the American people. I told someone yesterday in a store that I happened to be in, or the day before, whenever it was, they got talking about the presidency and the government and what's going on, and I said, within six months from now, you won't be able to find anybody who voted for Obama. Because of where things are headed in this country. In this article, he shows that one of the key ingredients of the betrayal of America to the Chinese and others is the Mormon church. And they were complicit up to their eyeballs in turning the power of the United States over to the Chinese. I'll let you read it for yourself, but I think you need to understand that the neighbors around us are not as innocent as they might appear. Now, the average Mormon might not understand what is going on, but the leadership most assuredly does. This article also quoted a meeting that we have heard about before, and that was the March 13th of 2008 meeting where the Club of Rome addressed the U.S. Congress in secret after making them all swear to secrecy. And in that meeting, you might recall, they were told, word leaked out, that the U.S. economy would begin collapsing in October of 2008. That indeed did occur. And at that same meeting, I don't know whether you recall this or not, it was also stated that by the middle of 2009, there would be a total collapse. Now, will this or will this not occur at that time? I'll not make any prognostication on that. I'm just giving you the information that has come out and that so far, so true. Everything they stated has happened at the right time and in the way that they said that it would. Now, if this be correct, 
We're looking at the total financial collapse of this country by what? June, July, August? <clears throat> and its whole financial system. So the United States dollar will be absolutely worthless and will buy nothing. The whole system, they're saying, is going to collapse. It's sick now. They're saying that it won't be the walking sick anymore, but it will be dead, is what they're saying. Perhaps we need to let that sink in a bit. It may or may not happen that quickly, but if you look at the things that are happening, it is imminent, whether it happened in that time frame or shortly thereafter. Herbert Armstrong told us decades ago that we needed to simplify our lives, that we needed to cut back, that we needed to get out of debt, that we needed to simplify our lives. Those were his instructions. I wonder... How many did that? I wonder how many are out of debt today? How many quit buying into the system? Quit buying things on credit and got their house in order financially? He warned us. He told us. And the words that he said were the words of God. That is a true principle. He was trying to help us understand that we are in the end times. Now, he thought it was going to come down quicker than it has, and perhaps he instituted emergency measures a little quicker than was necessary. Maybe, maybe not. But to this day, let's say roughly 30 years after he said that, I don't remember the exact time or year, but he said it several times. Are we still not heated? Are we still buying into this world and its system? There are several areas that I think we need to consider, and it's time we wake up. All would slumber and sleep, and we all did. And unfortunately, if we're waking up, I'm afraid we're still a little drowsy, brethren, spiritually. We need to consider the major problems of this world that God is about to punish it for and see how much we are still imbibing of this world and its system and its culture and we need to stop it! What are the problems of this world that God is angry with? and they do not comply with his standard of living in the way he would have us conduct our lives. 
We are on a moral toboggan sled in this country. And our morals in every aspect of life are sick and getting sicker. Financially, we are sick and getting sicker and about to die. How much are we still ensnared in the financial morass of our culture around us? How much of it have we escaped? Have we learned to manage the resources we have? Have we gotten our houses in order? Or are they still in terrible disrepair in many cases. Health and nutrition. We are sinning against our bodies. God said glorify God in our bodies. It's not just spiritual, quote unquote, but we are physical human beings. How much garbage are we still putting in our bodies in spite of sermons I've given, in spite of testimony from Daniel and other places. And we've still got junk on our shelves and in our refrigerators and freezers. It is important. We're sick physically as well as spiritually. We're getting sicker. We've been told for decades that giving rather than getting is God's way of life, a way of love rather than selfishness. I want to go back for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 11. I touched on this in a Bible study not long ago, and of course all of us aren't here for Bible study. But here's something that I feel is a very important key in our relationship with God. Deuteronomy 11. Let's pick it up in verse 13. And it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently to my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the eternal your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your corn and your wine and your oil. And I will send grass in the fields for your cattle that they may be full. And he goes on to explain the blessings he will give. Verse 18, Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. The ways and the commands of God have to be right in front of our eyes. Our main focus to worship Him with all our hearts 
You shall teach them your children, speaking of them, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. A constant thing then, right? Throughout your day. The ways and the Word of God should be our main focus. If our focus is still American Idol or Survivor or any other number of TV shows that we might like, name a bunch, then something is haywire. When you drive around this property at night and you can see the glare of a TV from first dark until late, something is wrong. Something. The focus is somehow, some way, not right. Is it wrong ever to turn on your TV? No. And I don't go standing in people's yards looking to see if I can see the glow and flicker. But it's hard to escape so very often. How much time, literally, do we spend talking about and teaching our children the commandments of God as opposed to letting them be entertained by a television or whatever television just came to mind, but there are all kinds of video games and internet things and so on that not only children but adults get involved in and waste hours and hours. They become the frontlet before our eyes. I want you to know today, I am dead serious. And I use the term dead on purpose because we have people on this property who are dying this very day. And we have a lot of others who are sick and getting old. And before long we'll also be as if something doesn't change. Is death serious or what? Where is our focus? Verse 22. For if you shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to cleave to him, then will the Eternal drive out all these nations from before you, and you shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours, from the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river and the river Euphrates, even to the uttermost sea shall your coast be. And I believe that's a description of the area we're living in, not of the Middle East. This is the promised land. Are we going to inherit it in full with blessing, or are we not? 
God has to make that judgment. There shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread upon, as he has said to you. I set before you this day a blessing and a cursing, a blessing if you obey the commandments of the Eternal your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Eternal your God, but turn aside out of the way which I commanded you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. And this nation is replete with all kinds of gods that take our time, sap, rob, and destroy our relationship with God. And we all imbibe of it, including me. And it's a shame. Do we realize that Hillary Clinton just went to China this week and begged the Chinese to keep buying U.S. Treasury debt so we can keep functioning. And they said the only way we will do that is if you allow us eminent domain in the United States. That is, that if they hold paper on our houses, our businesses, our industries, our cities, our highways, our states, that they can come in and repossess them and use military force if desired. And the U.S. consulate in China apparently has confirmed that this was done. Now, I've been saying a long time that we're in debt up to our ears and all they have to do is repossess us. But now they have apparently been given full authority by the U.S. government to do just that. The Gentile has risen high above us. And barely 30 days into a new presidency, we have probably the highest act of treason that has ever occurred in our land by a Gentile president. Shameful. And the portent is that all of us here will be dead or slaves if those people have their way in a very short time from now. This isn't a threat anymore. It's a reality. This isn't a far-off prophecy we might talk about anymore. It's a fact. A fait accompli. It's done. The only thing that will save us out of this, you and me, personally, is if we turn to God with our whole heart, 
not half-hearts. If we start doing what we're reading right here in Deuteronomy, instead of giving it lip service and then spending our time doing our thing, eating our specialty foods and drinking our specialty drinks and spending all kinds of money we cannot afford on entertaining ourselves and eating out and taking trips and all kinds of things we might desire to entertain ourselves or to enjoy life or to have a better life in this world when this nation is about to starve to death and some of our brethren here are poor and can barely make ends meet while we party on. It is an abomination to have that kind of attitude. Let's see Deuteronomy 15. Pick it up in verse 6. Well, let's, uh, let's go back. It's talking about the year of release here, when we release debts. <coughs> they didn't have 30-year mortgages in ancient Israel. It was illegal. We're getting now where we're getting close to seven-year car loans. We already have six-year car loans. Cars last two, three, four years. But we've got six-year loans, so you can buy them. says here that we, this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lends ought unto his neighbor or anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Other places it says we're not to charge interest of each other. Uh, we can of a, somebody in the world. Of a foreigner you may exact it again, but that which is yours with your brother, you, your hand shall release. Save when there shall be no poor among you. For the Eternal shall greatly bless you in the land which the Eternal your God gives you for inheritance to possess it. We haven't reached that point where there are no poor in the land. In fact, we're getting where there are more and more and more poor all the time. Because we have not obeyed God and made Him the frontlet before our eyes as a nation. And I dare say, and I think I'm absolutely correct, or as a church either. And it was our lackadaisical, Laodicean, half-hearted attitude that has caused the destruction that we have seen. So it's us. Only if you carefully hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God to observe to do all these commandments which I command you this day. So he said, you'll have inheritance and be blessed only if you will do all the commandments of God. Verse 6, For the Eternal your God shall bless you as He promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. If there be among you a poor man of one of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Eternal your God gives you, you shall not harden your heart, nor shut your hand from your poor brother. But you shall open your hand wide to him, and shall surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wants. Beware. Take heed. Beware. 
that there be not a thought in your wicked heart, saying the seventh year is at hand, I won't help my brother. We can find our way around things for our own good, or at least we think it's our good. I want to focus for a moment on what God tells this nation, this people, and this church, and you and me individually. He wants us to be in a financial condition whereby we can lend to others rather than borrow. That is where we should be. That is what God commanded of us. That is what Herbert Armstrong instructed us. But I dare say, most of us have more credit cards now than we did then. I dare say a lot of people are more in debt now than they were 30 years ago when he told us that. I read this scripture years ago to this congregation. How many heeded? How many still manage their money loosely and entertain themselves and take care of things and still whip out that credit card and still have credit card debt while they enjoy the good life? Because of utter selfishness. And we're disobeying God. This whole nation has disobeyed God so horribly that we are the greatest debtor on earth. We used to be the biggest creditor on earth only a few years ago. But well, we've spiraled into deep, deep debt. And now the only way we can continue even a few more months is to give away our land. When are we? God's people. Going to learn to control ourselves and control our finances. When are we going to quit doing what we want to do and manage things the way God says. I wonder. God's blessings are conditional upon us doing things His way. And His financial way is one of the most important. Now, if you have not been managing your finances properly and have been spending too much on yourself, and have been whipping out the credit card and going deeper and deeper into debt instead of managing carefully and getting further out of debt, then you need to find somehow, some way, if you can't do it by yourself and on your own, to get with somebody who can help you learn to manage properly, help you 
discern what you should and should not buy and change some things, manage them properly. I guess we consider it a God-given right to buy junk food and to eat out and to get a fancy appliance or whatever we want to do. Rather than say, I can live without that, I need to get my finances straightened out, I need to get out of debt. You know, we still buy a lot of things we don't have to have. Now, if you have managed properly and you have money and you're not in debt, maybe you can have a little more liberty with those things. But if you haven't managed carefully and done those things which God says, then we need to tighten the belt and change some things, brethren. Now, I'm not trying to get all over you for a wrong reason. We are facing death and, slave, and enslavement. That's what we're facing, shortly. They've already built concentration camps to put us in. And you had better believe we're high on their list of people to kill or put into camps. We, sitting here, standing here. I'm high on their list. And I may get higher on their list. Back to the business, I think I'll get higher and higher and higher on their list. A prime candidate. Because I'm going to speak out on what's right and what's wrong. Part of our problem is that we tend to be, as humans, birds of a feather, and we'll flock together with the same ones that have the same problem we do. And if we're in debt and I haven't managed things right, we'll get with those who are in the same boat and commiserate and sympathize with each other about how bad things are. Instead of going to someone who has managed properly, has done it right, and is in a better position, and talk with them about it because they might be able to help us instead of just boo-hoo with us. And that's true of any aspect of life. People who have the same problems tend to get together with others who have like problems. And there's no solution there. There's just feel better about ourselves and our deplorable condition. Smokers, drinkers, overweighters, financial abusers, whatever the problem might be. I don't think homosexuals go to heterosexuals and ask for help. They go to other homosexuals and ask for help. That's a big help, to use a real crude example. 
of a terrible sin. Why will you die, O Church of God? Didn't we just read in Deuteronomy 11 that if we will obey God, there shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread upon. We are targeted for death and dismemberment. We are, you and me. I want us to come to the point that instead of them thinking they can take us out whenever they want, they will have such a fear and a dread of us that we will scare them out of their skins because of the power of God behind us. We have been working on a project which I feel is a very important project an archaeological project that I think may shock the world when it comes to fruition. But we were pulled off of that this week because somebody is scared to death the people in power will find it and take it from us if we find anything. That's sad. Now, we're going ahead with another project, which I feel can be important as well along the same lines, but it's not in quite as hot a spot, and the dangers are not perhaps quite as great. So we've been given opportunity to continue, but in a little bit different mode for the time being. I think we need to take it seriously. You and I have been given insight, understanding of how God is going to conduct his work and his people in this end time. And even in the church of God, we have by far and away been given more knowledge and understanding than any group I know of. By far. Now they'll think the information I'm talking about is nuts. That's okay. I think I know better. And to whom much is given, much is required. We cannot afford to go on the way we have been going. I don't want us to accept that, I don't guess we're just going to keep dying. I want us to do something about it. I want to find God. And I want to find God's answers. I do not want to accept mediocrity, halfway prayers, and halfway answers from Almighty God. He must be the focus of our entire lives.
daily as we go about our business. This requires change on our part. I've been thinking for several weeks, well, maybe it's time for me to quit preaching for a while. Maybe it's time to let somebody else do it. Maybe we're just used to it. Maybe we don't really listen. Maybe we take it for granted. Maybe I do too. I don't know that that's the answer, but I have certainly considered it fairly seriously. Have I yelled so much over the last years that it's falling on deaf ears now? Well, that's a pretty good sermon, preacher. Walk out the door and go right back to the things we're doing. Not really. Take stock of our spiritual condition and how much we're serving God and how much we're serving ourselves. Herbert Armstrong used to say, you're just not getting it, brethren. And we weren't. And I'm sad to say I still don't think we are. We may be getting a little better than we used to. You must have gotten it some or you wouldn't even be here. But are we really getting it? Is God and His work what consumes our time, our energy, our passions, our thoughts? Is learning to live His way and spending a lot of time in prayer, study of His Word, reminding ourselves, the focus in our lives? Or are we just rocking along? Taking it easy. And expecting God to bless us. I want his fury to depart from us. I want him to turn his face back to us. When will we take him seriously? When will we turn with more than 50, 60, 70, 80% of our heart, our mind, our energy to Almighty God who created us, who holds life and death in His hand, who can grant us life eternal, who can grant us protection physically even from what's about to come down in this world? And yet we give Him 10%. 50%, 80%. Some will not even give him 10% of their income. wonder how much of their attention he has. And that's all he asks. But they rebel, take it lightly. I'll just throw some money at God once in a while on an offering. It's not what the law says. 
Some don't even want to read the law. But 10% doesn't mean, yeah, somewhere between 5 and 15. It means an honest 10, plus our offerings. And if we can't even do that, can we give him 100% of our attention? I want to read a couple of passages to us. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7. First Corinthians 7. Paul is addressing some very serious issues in the church. <clears throat> issues of whether or not people could divorce and remarry. And he makes a pretty serious, far-reaching decision here. And God chose to put it in the Bible. Now, we all know that God was very serious about marriage, and his intent when he made Adam and Eve was to have one man, one woman together for life. That was his intent originally. Now because of hardness of heart, Moses allowed men to put away their wives for any and every reason really. But Christ changed that in Matthew 19 and said Moses allowed that because of how hard your hearts were but in the beginning it was not so. And we were not to take divorce and remarriage lightly. It is a very serious thing. Because as we've been seeing in a series of sermons, our marriages are supposed to represent Christ and the church. That's as serious an analogy as you can get. So God takes it seriously. Can we divorce the church, and divorce Christ. Now, without serious penalty, you can't. Loss of eternal life, perhaps. So marriage is taken very seriously with God. But they had problems where God had maybe only called the man or the woman into the church. And God then took that responsibility upon himself that if your mate who might not be in the faith, gave you trouble and would not let you obey God freely and according to your convictions and the way you felt you should, opposed you <clears throat> either physically or mentally, verbal abuse or whatever, to the point that it affected your relationship with God, that you could divorce them and not be bound to them and free to marry only in the church. So as strict as God is about marriage and divorce and remarriage, he allowed Paul to make this decision and caused it to be put in the Bible showing his acceptance of what Paul determined. that our marriage with Christ is far more important than our physical marriage. Women today have a problem with that often and say, well, I have to obey my husband. Yes, you do. And your spiritual husband is far more important than your physical husband. And he had better be. 
And if there comes any time that your physical husband wants you to do something that's contrary to God, there should be absolutely no question that you rebel against your physical husband. Do not use a man as any kind of an excuse not to put God first in your life. Because that's what it is. I use that as an introduction. Let's pick it up in verse 23. I've been quoting from verses oh, 10 down. You are bought with a price. The bride price was the death of our Savior. We were redeemed with that from sin. Be not the servants of men. Now, how do we serve men? We buy their junk to support them. We buy their diluted chemical foods to support them. We use their credit cards to support them instead of following Deuteronomy 15 and getting rid of them. I know you can't do it overnight. Why didn't we start when Herbert Armstrong told us to? Well, sorry, we didn't. I'm not going to castigate us for that. Let's start now. No time like the present, is there? I know some people around the world and in the church, and I don't know whether here or not, perhaps not, but have gotten into the attitude or the approach of, that's ah, all coming down anyway, might as well just run up the credit cards. Might as well just go ahead and use this plastic. They'll be gone. We'll have to pay it back anyway. Now, you know, carnally speaking, that might be true. Carnally speaking. But that isn't the way God wants us to live. That's not the right way to live. The right way to live is to manage properly and be in a position to help others not borrow in order to survive. This world is facing financial calamity because of not managing finances properly. Are we going to go down with it? Or will we make the changes we need to make and have God bless us the way he said he can? I submit to you that pretty soon, unless God takes a hand, there will not be sufficient food to keep us in the manner in which we are accustomed. And we're going to need God to open the windows of heaven as he's promised in Isaiah 54 and 5 and other places and pour out his blessing upon us. <clears throat> and I want to see it happen. Will we pay the price to put God's commandments in front of our eyes and change some habits? Don't be the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Now, the overall subject here is marriage. In other words, if you're married when you come into the church, stay that way. 
If you're not married when you come in, stay that way. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Let every man, wherein he is called, therein abide with God. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the eternal, yet I give my judgment as one that has obtained mercy of the eternal to be faithful. He had spent three and a half years in the deserts of Arabia being taught by Christ. He had the Spirit of God. He made a judgment here, and God honored it by putting it in the Bible. And it is now God-breathed, not Paul-breathed. Let's understand that. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. We are entering the present distress that Paul was speaking of. He thought the end of the age was upon them, that the prophecies of Joel and Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel were about to come down. So he said, in this present distress, let's not even think about marriage. <clears throat> now marriage is one of the most important things there is to human beings. Is it not? And yet God, through Paul, is saying that when these things get this stressful, when we're that close to the end, it's not even time to think about marriage. Are you bound to a wife? Seek not to be loosed from her. Are you loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But and if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. This I say, brethren, the time is short. It remains that both they that have wives be as though they had none. And they that weep as though they wept not. They that rejoice as though they rejoice not. And they that buy as though they possess not. And they that use this world and not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passes away. There will be no credit cards in the world tomorrow. There will be no banks in the world tomorrow. There will be no insurance companies in the world tomorrow. There will be a lot of things that are here that will not be in the world tomorrow. What he's saying here is what we read in Deuteronomy. Put God as a frontlet before your eyes. The focus. Might I say the only focus. He said even if you're married, be as if you were not. I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the eternal, how he may please the eternal. He that is married cares for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. Now, does that mean we ought to start ignoring each other in the hall? 
and act like we're not even married? No, that's not the point he's driving at. The point he's driving at is when you see these things happening and the end of the age is upon you, and you're either going to be killed and go to, into concentration camps or be saved out of it, you had better put God first. And you had better take care of the spiritual. Even if it means neglecting your husband or your wife to one degree or another, you put God first. Now isn't that pretty serious? We have trouble putting God ahead of a TV program or whatever hobby or habit we might have. And here he says, put them ahead of your husband or your wife. That's pretty serious. Now this isn't Daryl's opinion. This is scripture written by Almighty God. There's difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares for the things of the eternal, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But she that is married cares for the things of this world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit. Not to be against you. For your profit. For your understanding. So that things might be better with you. Not that I may cast a snare upon you, well, that's what I just said, but for that which is comely, that which is good, that you may attend upon the eternal without distraction. That's the point. When you're about to die, there's only one that can save you. Your husband, your wife, cannot save you. They cannot give you eternal life. Marriage is a physical union that ends at death. It's over. People think, well, that's all right, I'll be with them in the world tomorrow. Where'd you get that? Maybe, maybe not. Your relationship to a husband or a wife ends when one of you dies. And for you to say, well, I'll be with them forevermore in the world tomorrow is arrogant and selfish and unfounded on Scripture. God can reshuffle the deck any way He wants to. And with good cause. Now some of you might say, well, I'd like to be with who I was with on this earth for eternity. Maybe you would. But there might be just about as many with us, of us would say, oh boy, I hope not. You know? just depends on the deal. Some people might not want to be there if they had to spend it with old so-and-so for the rest of eternity. Some marriages aren't too happy. Some are deliriously happy. But all have problems. Every one of them. Would you rather trust God to decide where you ought to be and who you ought to work with eternity or make your own judgment? Do we believe God? Do we have faith in God? Do we trust Him? Or will we have things 
our way. The point here is attend upon the eternal without distraction. Well, that's enough of that in that chapter. I wanted us to use it as a glimpse of how at the end time we need to be reacting and thinking. Let's move on to Matthew 24. Most of you are probably pretty familiar with this. We haven't been over it in a while. But I think when we see our nation being literally sold out and given away for debt, we need to consider that we are very, very near the end of the sovereignty of this country. And some states now are voting to secede, to declare their own sovereignty so that the federal government cannot give them away to others. It's become serious enough so that some of the politicians of some of the states understand what's going on. And they want to try to prevent it. But they can't, it won't. Thoughts about the temple here, and we can look upon it as a spiritual situation. There will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. The church was going to be destroyed. We've seen it pretty much destroyed, but we're going to see further destruction. Zechariah 11 says three big churches, three shepherds, three ministries are going down. And I think that will be very soon. If that total collapse comes in the middle of this year, as they project, it could happen that soon. If it's months past that, or 2010, or whenever it happens, it may happen then. But it's going to happen. The church is going to be broken down even further than it is today. They came to him privately in verse 3 and said, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The end of the world as we know it. The end of Israel as we know it. <coughs> and Christ answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. Whether that means saying he is the Christ or Many will come saying they are. It's a little unclear here. But I think we're going to see both and have seen both. And deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. We've heard of wars. We've heard of rumors of wars. We still do. <clears throat> But that is not the end. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. We're seeing an increase of those. We've been watching them for years, but we're going to see more and more. The water situation around the world is getting critical. There's not enough water for everyone. And water wars are about to occur, not in food wars. The agricultural industry in the United States is being destroyed. All these are the beginning of sorrows. You're going to see all these things. That's really just the beginning. 
going to get a lot worse than that. Then, once we've seen those things, shall they deliver you, the disciples, the church, up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now, was I just blowing smoke out of my hat when I said that our names are going to go higher and higher on their list of people to get rid of? You, his followers, will be hated of all peoples for his name's sake. <clears throat> this group of people here and those who join with us, I believe, are going to be the most hated people that the world has ever known. Not by a few. will be hated by all. Are we ready for that? Are you ready for every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth to wish with all his heart, with all his passion, with every feeling he has that you were dead? That is what it's coming to. And very simple. And the more we obey God and the more we fear Him and the more we obey Him, the worse it will get for us as far as this world is concerned. In for a penny, in for a pound. We were supposed to have considered this when we were baptized. Count the cost. Be willing to stay in there to the death. Not run willy-nilly in fear the first time trouble appears. God tells us right here at the end time to be of, of uh, good courage, to fear not, to be strong, and to work. He doesn't tell us to entertain ourselves, take it easy, Continue to imbibe with the good ways of our culture. He gave us explicit instructions. Focus on what he wants done. <clears throat> now as a result of the attitude of all nations who want to kill us, and would take great pleasure in torturing us to do it. He says, then shall many be offended. Not a few, many. And shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. It won't just be the world, all of it, hating every one of us. Some of us called out of God sanctified by the blood of Christ, will hate and betray one another to the death.
somewhere along here you're beginning to talk about some serious stuff. Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. What is iniquity? Sin, wickedness, inattention to God, which is idolatry, biggest sin of all. Now do we begin to grasp the importance of what we've been looking at today. That our focus needs to be totally on God. <clears throat> Even if your wife or your husband has to go without attention sometimes because you're busy with making a living, taking care of the kids, cooking, working on the car, whatever. We're busy with those things. And we have to be human, and we have to live, and we have to do certain things. We can't just all walk around with our hands folded praying all the time. But we need to be absolutely sure that God is the focus in our life and put him first and do what he wants done. And if we indulge in self-idolatry, self-idolism, like this world is around us, then our love will wax cold and we will be candidates to betray one another. And that's scary. I would hope that here in this room, and on these, tele these radio waves, radio, tele telephone, whatever it is, that we could be close enough, loving enough, devoted enough to God that we could trust one another with our lives. Because as we move forward, that is exactly what we will be doing. Can we trust everyone here not to betray us? Not to be so weak that they put their physical life and well-being ahead of ours? Isn't that what love is all about? To be selfless, to be giving, to perhaps even die before betraying someone else to death. How much of the love of God do we have, brethren? How focused on God? How much of His power? How much of His might? How much of His Spirit do we have that we will react spiritually instead of carnally, humanly, and physically? Look at yourself. How often do you react carnally, selfishly? I find myself praying more and more that God help me walk in the Spirit. Sometimes the reactions are just plain carnal. We're human. And we walk by the flesh if we're not very, very careful. It takes time and energy and dedication to get close enough to God that our reactions are godly, Christ-like actions and reactions, not human selfish ones.
That's a big deal. It's the toughest thing there is on earth to achieve. But we begin to see why we need to be devoted to God and have Him as the focus and the frontlet before our eyes. We react carnally to our own mates that we put ahead of God so often. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. That is, retain his faith, retain his trust, retain his obedience, endure everything that is thrown at him, and not give in to selfishness, carnality, and betrayal, but endure faithfully and steadfastly is implied here to the end. Not just sort of hang on like a hangnail, but to be tried in true blue, strong, and powerful in the spirit of Almighty God. We have to get there. Let's read on. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. That scripture has not even begun to be fulfilled yet. Herbert Armstrong did not do it. He died a quarter of a century ago, and the end has not come. That should be evidence that he did not fulfill Matthew twenty-four fourteen. He thought he was, but he didn't. He fulfilled Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which was to call many of many nations and baptize them in the name of Christ. Well, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or Spirit, which we found to be wrong. Badly translated and perhaps some bad stuff inserted there. This job still has to be done, and it's going to be done right at the end. And very, very difficult times. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness, and then shall the end come. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. This is difficult to understand. Think about it. Understand what it means, because it will not be that which meets the eye naturally and normally and understood by large numbers of people. That parenthetical statement is oh so important. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. I don't believe most of the church even knows where the true Judea is. They don't know which mountains to flee into. See why it's important to understand? We better know the real promised land. We better know the real Judea. We better know the real Zion and the real Jerusalem. Or we may be in the wrong place fleeing to the wrong place. And that will get you killed. 
Now, if there wasn't a lot of misunderstanding and opportunity to misunderstand, why would he have put that parenthetical statement in there in the first place? This is something that is not apparent. It's something that must be discerned and learned. Otherwise, we'll be in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. Keep your finger there a minute. Let's go back to Daniel for just a moment. How much time do I have left? May I'll hurry here. This could go on and on, but go to about Daniel 9. Seventy weeks prophecy here. I don't want to go through the whole thing. We've been there before and I've explained this. But it talks about the people of the prince in the bottom part of verse 26. Shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Speaking here of Jerusalem and the sanctuary in the temple. And the end thereof shall be with a flood or an army, and to the end of the war desolations are determined. Now this is speaking of the abomination of desolation. And it will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now if we find out where the true Jerusalem is, the city has to be built. And the sanctuary has to be built and cleansed and prepared before the abomination is even set up. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel the prophet we just read about it in Matthew 24, 14, or 15, is talking about this, and it says it will happen 69 weeks after the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem in verse 25 of Daniel 9. Now there's a Jerusalem over there. Why would you need to build it? It's there. But we're talking about a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Jeremiah 9, 11, Isaiah 61, Ezekiel 34, or 36, whatever it is, 36 maybe, tell us that Jerusalem has been desolate for many generations in the cities of Judah. And no man would go there. There's no place to go. It's desolate. So putting that together with this, it means that it has to be built before the abomination of desolation even occurs. And that 70 weeks are determined. And when the command goes to build the city, it will be that amount of time, 69 or 70 weeks, before the abomination is set up. So if you already got a Jerusalem over there, this must be talking about some other city that needs built, right? The Jews are planning to build a temple over there in the false Judea. There's no temple there or in the true site of Jerusalem, either place. So if the sanctuary is going to be made desolate, then that means the temple has to be built. 
There's work ahead. What does Haggai tell us to do? He says, quit focusing on your stuff. Quit focusing on your wages. You have pockets with holes in everything you make. Now it just seems to go down the rat hole. No value left in it. So he says, get it together, people, and build my temple. Don't run to your own houses, run to mine. Now where should our focus be? We've got to get it together. The time is coming. This nation, according to Congress and those who talk to Congress, is going to collapse in the middle of this year. It's not very far off. That's only four or five months away. Look how quick the first two months of this year went by. This spring could be very pivotal. We went through Isaiah 40 through 48 in Bible study the other night. showed a possible sequence. And it may just be that the treasures of God have to be uncovered before the collapse of this nation, if those chapters are sequential in the way that they're laid out. And if it's going to fall this summer, then some of these things have to happen this spring. Do our people have to die, brethren? Is it possible they could live? Is it possible that if we begin to finally take things seriously and not for granted? But some people who might otherwise die might have opportunity to live and be renewed and see what God does and be a part of His work here at the end and help us finish it? We're going to take it for granted and just let them die? Or are we going to serve God with our whole heart and our whole focus and His work be our focus? We're going to worry about just the physical stuff around us and having ourselves entertained and enjoy our programs or whatever it is we enjoy? Or are we going to turn to God's Word? Are we going to get on our knees and cry out to Almighty God to save us? Jerusalem and the temple have to be built before the abomination is set up in order so that they might be desecrated. And God tells His people in Haggai and Zechariah to do that job. We have the one most important thing on earth to be doing right now.
we there? Are we focused? Are we still taking care of ourselves? When you see that abomination stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. Let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. It's pretty serious. Woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. Do you dare get pregnant now? And go waddling off trying to make it to a place of safety? Pray that your flight be not in bad weather or on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world at this time, nor nor ever shall be. Have you seen and read about some of the wars, the captivities, the ghettos, the torture that has gone on in the past, the crusades, it's going to be far worse. Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's day, sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there will be all kinds of false Christ insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. When he says, pray that your flight not be in bad weather or on the Sabbath, prayer is a serious business. It means cry out to God to save our lives, to protect us so that we might be an example and a light to the world and do his work of witnessing and preaching the gospel around the world for a witness so the end may indeed come. I want to go back to Joel for a few moments here and wrap this up. Let's go to Joel 2. This book is centered on the day of the Lord, the end time events, and those things leading up to it. He tells us to blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Now we've read this before. And this chapter has been used by many groups, many religions, many churches of God, for that matter, to call a fast. I've done it in the past. He says, the day of the Lord is coming and nothing shall escape what is about to come down. The end of verse 3. Verse 12, let's get to the advice. Therefore also now, says the Eternal, turn you even to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. 
This is echoed in Jeremiah, was it 29, I think, where it says, you'll find me when you turn to me with your whole heart. He says, turn with your whole heart, fasting, weeping, mourning. Brethren, we have people on this very property who are in the process of dying before our very eyes. We are all in danger of dying when all this hits that is about to come. It's serious. I don't want to bury Gene Terry. I don't want to bury Fred Sulis. I don't want to bury any of you. I don't want you to bury me. I want us to all live and be a witness for God and do His work. Time to fast and weep and mourn and ask for help rather than blasely going on through life doing our thing. Rend your heart, not your garments. Turn to the eternal your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and relents him of the evil. Brethren, if we'll just do it, if we'll just put him as the frontlet in our eyes, instead of all the other garbage we imbibe in, and the time we waste, your very life hangs in the balance. And whether he will show mercy and allow you to be protected from all this that's coming. Who knows if he will return and relent? Remember Zephaniah 2? It says, gather yourselves ahead of time and maybe he will show mercy. He says he will save for himself a meek and humble folk at the end of that chapter who obey him and serve him. There are always conditions. Perchance, God will forgive us and heal us and help us and protect us. Is this just another sermon? Are we just playing church? Should I shut up now instead of finishing this? because it's doing no good anyway. It'll be taken for granted. Just Daryl having another temper tantrum. Are you letting it seek into your soul, the depths of your heart, what God is trying to tell us in these scriptures? Isn't it time to do something? I think we're just saying, well, I guess I better do something about that someday. Put it off and put it off. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Set aside the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Get everybody's attention, he says. Even the little ones. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Isn't that what Paul told us? Forget about marriage. 
Forget about the physical. Get the spiritual right. Put God first or you are going to die. And it won't matter if you got married or not. Or if you have been married or are married. Marriage is probably as important as anything else there is for human beings other than life itself. And God says, put him ahead of that when you see these things happening. Marriage is physical. We have a spiritual marriage to our Savior for eternity that is far more important than the physical. As important as the physical is. Let the priests, the ministers of the eternal, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O eternal, and give not your heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? We claim to follow God. We claim to be God's people. Are we going to be destroyed like everybody else and then people say, yeah, where's their God? Why didn't he save them? We cannot afford to go on as we have. We have got to change and put God absolutely first in everything we do. Then will the eternal be jealous for his land and pity his people. He'll make you no more reproach among the heathen. Our nation is quickly becoming a reproach among the heathen. And the Chinese have been given the green light, apparently, if that article is true, to come in here and take over our property. You don't know who owns your mortgage. You don't know how they divided it up and sold it. The Chinese, the Germans, any of those people could be holding your paper now. If you have a mortgage... Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, verse 21, for the eternal will do great things. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field. Now that is in the context of us turning to God with our whole heart. Then we will not need to fear. I hope, I hope to God that I have instilled some fear in you today. But I hope that fear is in Almighty God, not in the New World Order or the Chinese, or anybody else. Fear God and keep His commandments, and you'll be fine. Let's just understand that it is coming down and coming down soon, and that we had better get the fear of God as a frontlet before our eyes, and put Him absolutely first, and what he needs done absolutely first. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness is spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, 
You've been given much, much is required. The church, most of it, does not understand what the children of Zion really even means. And rejoice in the eternal your God, for he has given you the former reign moderately. We've had blessings. We've come to understanding. We're already a lot better off than most of the world, having come out of the cities that are about to be destroyed. This desert out here is going to be so lovely compared to those cities very shortly. You think it's a waste howling desert? You think maybe it's ugly? You think it maybe it's dry? You think it's in a God-forsaken land? Well, God is not going to forsake this land. He's going to bring His people here, and He's going to protect them. And we can be among them. And you're going to be so thankful to Almighty God for this place, you will not be able to stand it if you're not already when you see this all happen. Be glad and rejoice. Rejoice in the eternal your God. He's given you the former rain and will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. I submit to you that this could be a very pivotal year. The collapse has begun. It's upon us. And if those who are pulling the strings behind the scenes, guided by Satan the devil himself, pull it off in the middle of this year, it's going to be awful. And maybe this is the year God gives us the former and the latter rain in the first month. He'll turn his face and wipe our sins away as a cloud, as he says in Isaiah 44. Maybe he will. I hope this is the year. I'm not going to predict it. We might have to go through another one. But I hope this is it. And if this is it, I said, if this is it, how should we be acting if this thing isn't just going to go on and on and on another year or two or three, but the temple has to be built and Jerusalem has to be built before the tribulation even comes, had we better not focus on God and what He needs done? If this nation is going to be destroyed before our very eyes, hadn't we better get to work? on our spiritual temple and on the physical temple. God doesn't tell the Jews to do it. He says, my people. I want those former and latter reigns. Zechariah tells us to pray for them. I don't have time to go there. Zechariah 10, verse 1. Pray for the former and latter rains. And here he says, I will give it to you in the first month. It's specific. And then he says he'll pour out his spirit afterward, maybe Pentecost time. And all kinds of miracles will happen. Maybe the time of Acts 2 is almost truly upon us, but not just Acts 2, Joel 2, in the setting of the day of the Lord that is not far off.
Is it time to focus or what? They're at the door. I don't know if preaching will do any good. I don't know if I'm listening keenly enough. I don't know if you're listening keenly enough. This is no time to take it for granted. It's time for us to make some true changes in our approach to life, in our approach to each other, and our approach to what God needs done. And get it done. And pray with all our hearts the former and the latter reigns. And to rend our hearts and not our garments. To weep, to cry, and to fast. I'm going to fast next Sabbath. Because that's part of this. I would hope that a lot of you would feel the same way. Because this is serious. I don't want you to betray me, and I don't want to betray you. I want us to be faithful to the end. And I want to worship God and have you do it with me, with all my heart, mind, body, and soul, and pray to him in faith and in hope and in trust that he will have mercy and deliver our souls.